if you could turn in your Bibles, and if you don't have a Bible, there should be in the pew, the little, I don't know what you call those pew pockets, but the little pew pocket, there's a Bible in there, and a hymnal. Uh, if you could please turn to Philippians 3, verses 7 through 11. That's Philippians 3, verses 7 through 11. And this is the Word of God. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. We come to you and we look into your word and we pray that it would be your Holy Spirit working in our hearts, that we may see you more clearly, that we may love you more dearly, that we may strive to obey you, not out of a heart that wants to make itself righteous, but out of a heart that is loved by God, because you have loved your enemies and gave your life for them. We come to you, Jesus, and we trust in you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In seminary, when you're in a homiletics class, which is a class that teaches you how to preach, they talk about introductions a lot, actually. And an introduction, the, pro the point of it, it's either by a story or an example or some other tool, invigorate those who are sitting, especially on a cold morning like today, to listen, to draw them in. The idea is that people have been elsewhere this whole week, that as you were driving in this morning, more likely than not, trying to survive the weather like I was, your mind might have been on other things. And so, by some sort of introduction to draw you in, but the truth of the matter is that as I thought of these verses, I could think of nothing better than to read them, to invigorate those who are sitting here to listen, to think of such a succinct and beautiful summary of our Christian faith, to think that there may be those this morning that aren't excited. But if you would just trust me in saying, this is something to be excited about that reading these verses should put us on the edge of our seats to desire to understand the depth and the riches and the glory of God in Christ Jesus. Philippians needs little introduction. It's a beautiful letter. It's Paul's most personal letter. What he does in Philippians, he does nowhere else. What takes him chapters in Romans, in Philippians, he handles in five verses. He summarizes beautiful themes. It's often quoted, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians is filled with beautiful verses and these five are not an exception. 
These are some of the most beautiful verses and pictures of the gospel in all of scripture. Paul both explains how sinners are reconciled to God and the promises that are there in Christ, there is in Christ Jesus. We are going to look at Christ Jesus this morning, pure and simple. We're going to look at the good news of Jesus and what that means for us. We will talk about the treasure of the gospel. We will talk about the heart of the gospel. And we will talk about the promise of the gospel. And so without further ado, let us begin. Verses 7 through 8, the treasure of the gospel. And I'll read them again, since I didn't have an introduction. But whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Let's look at this carefully. Paul is transitioning from talking about all the things that could be counted to him for his advantage. He had listed all the different things which he could have placed his value in, whether it's the things that he did or his own pedigree, the things which he had earned in his life. And the flow of thought is rather beautiful. First, Paul describes the fact in verse 7 that he counts everything a loss for the sake of Christ. If he were to list all the things in his life before Jesus in terms of giving him significance and worth and righteousness, he would count them as a loss. He goes further and in verse 8 he says he counts everything a loss for the surpassing worth of what? Knowing Christ. To Paul, everything is nothing in comparison to knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. This deeply personal statement that only happens once in all of his writings, and it happens here. In other writings, Paul says, Jesus Christ, our Lord. In the Damascus Road, he said, who are you, Lord? But in all the writings of Paul that we have as inspired scripture, this is the only place where he says, Jesus Christ, my Lord, in a single verse, that was his question on that road. When he was confronted, he cried out, who are you, Lord? He now knows the answer. And even years after, after many, many years, while writing from prison, while the gospel had cost him everything, he still cries out, Jesus Christ, my Lord. He has found the pearl of great price. He has found that which he had been longing for and had no idea. He had found that which can truly satisfy, that which can truly justify, that which can truly change, to know Christ, my Lord. The language here does not only emphasize the point of conversion, but he, when he repeats it in verse 8 by saying, indeed, I count everything as a loss. What he's saying is, I continue counting and will cont continue counting everything as a loss in comparison. The emphasis in his, is on his continual habit and remembrance of the work of Christ. Not only is Christ of great and indescribable value, back on that faithful afternoon, he is continually of great value to Paul. He does not only go through the loss of all things, but in comparison to Christ, he considers them all rubbish. There's an adage that says familiarity breeds contempt, 
But for Paul, it was the opposite. The more he knew Christ, the more he loved them. In that way, he is saying this. Imagine we place an old-timey scales. All of the world, with all of its benefits, and all of its advantages, and all of its plans. And on the other side, you place Christ, with all of his promises, and all of his benefits, and what it means to be in Christ. The comparison is far outweighed. There is no comparison. He is like a man who stumbles upon a great treasure in a field. And he goes back and sells all that he has. And he buys that field. There is no comparison. Christ is the treasure of the gospel. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Christ is the treasure. I was thinking about what it was like to choose a church or what it's like. Usually when people pick churches, usually, it comes down to three things. It's either the preaching, it's either the worship, or it's the children and young adult ministry. But there's a variety of other things that people ask when they join a church. Uh, and again, you may be a visitor this morning. This is not me trying to convince you. Like legitimately, I was thinking about that. Although we would love for you to come to our church. Also, don't take that. But I've, you know, I've heard people choose churches on the type of coffee they serve in the morning. The specific Bible translation that is used. The style of preaching. The tie the pastor wears. The curriculum. How well the worship leader dresses. Now... There are important questions to ask. That's not what I'm saying. And details matter. Bible translations matter. Right? There are many factors that we need to consider when we choose a church. And perhaps you are visiting this morning. Again, there are many things to consider. But I do want to say this. There are a lot of reasons to consider. But the primary reason should be, is Christ preached there? Is Jesus a treasure? Not just whether we have an organ, not just whether how well the pastor dresses or whether there's a choir or whether we use blue or red hymnals. Because if Christ is treasured, it will influence all of those other things. But let us never forget and let the church never forget. Jesus is the treasure. Christ, as he's freely offered in the gospel, is the scriptures expounded in such a way that we see Christ more clearly. It's not just the building, although we have a beautiful building, or how well we speak. It's not wealth or prosperity or intellectual prowess. All those things are important and have their place. There are different gifts in the church. But what comes first is Jesus the treasure. That we as a church always proclaim and even as we gather, individually and corporately, that we may say, Jesus Christ, my Lord. And this flows into the next point. If Jesus is the treasure of the gospel, how do we gain this treasure? And we go to verse 9. Perhaps, my favorite verse in all of the Bible, maybe. All right? There's a lot of good verses. 
And verse 9 reads this, And to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul, in a single verse, summarizes what justification means and its value. Verse 8 ends with, by saying that the, the goal that Paul had was to gain Christ. Verse 9 begins by saying, to be found in him. They are not separate ideas. To gain Christ and to be found in him are related. But how so? The language of union with Christ is beautifully threaded throughout the entire passage. He continues to explain what does it mean to gain Christ or to be found in him. He does this by describing two types of justification. Two types of righteousness. Either self-righteousness or the righteousness from God. So let's look at the beginning of verse 9. And to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. There are a lot of pictures in the media of stuffy, self-righteous, usually religious people that consider themselves superior to others by their pedigree or achievements. Self-righteous people in our day and age are the villains and antagonists. Even in a culture where all villains are getting their story retold so we can understand their tragic origins and to show them compassion, self-righteous villains, no matter how much background is given, are almost always treated with vitriol. Paul here addresses that villainy by talking about self-righteousness. Not having a righteousness on our own that comes from the law. That's what he says. First, Paul begins by recognizing the temptations of his previous life to look for righteousness that comes from the law, a righteousness of his own making. He, throughout this chapter, is really leading us to the conclusion that such a righteousness, whether based on pedigree or actions, is empty and unable to save. The righteousness which we are able to produce is unable to make us just before God. It is a justification that justifies nothing. This righteousness is what we as a people lost, as we talked about last time when we looked at Philippians, in the fall. Because of Adam's first sin, we lose that original righteousness with which we were meant to live, and our very nature becomes corrupted by sin. Sin is a guilt and a pollution. So we are in need of justification and to trust in Christ. And there, from there overflow all actual transgressions. You may say this morning that you don't care about being righteous. Once I, I led a Bible study on Romans and it talked about righteousness and I had somebody raise their hand and, I, and say, I don't care about being righteous. I don't know who God is and I don't care what he thinks about me. And I was like kind of flabbergasted. I was like, ah, uh, you should, you know. <laughs> but in truth is, you do. All people throughout all ages recognize that something is wrong. No one, no one can look at the world and ourselves and say that there is no problem at all. That is if we are honest with ourselves. There is something wrong. So we may strive to resolve that issue through government programs or education or challenges or independence or relationships and the list goes on and on and on. And it's not that those things are bad, but they certainly can't save. And that's just a symptom of our longing for righteousness. Throughout the ages, there have always been an attempt to justify ourselves and to make ourselves righteous again. 
people have always grasped at meaning and value. Some have even suggested that the solution to this grasping is to come to terms with the idea that we have no value and the world is random and there is no purpose. But such dark nihilism still does not resolve the basic issues and longings of the human heart. Self-righteousness is the struggle of every person ever born in the history of mankind, regardless of what it looks like. We want to justify ourselves. We want to make ourselves righteous. And it is easy to call self-righteousness rubbish when we see it in villainous characters of modern media, to hate it when we see it in others. But it is far more difficult to call it trash or rubbish when it presses up against the very things we do to find meaning and purpose. It is much harder to hate our own self-righteousness. But the truth of the matter is, outside of Christ, that's all any of us have that we all were or are at one time self-righteous, self-justifiers. So if the problem is the fact that we aim to make ourselves righteous, but we have a genuine need for righteousness, what is the solution? There are two sources of righteousness presented in this passage. Either we try to be self-righteous, which I would not recommend, or as it is presented here, there is a righteousness through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is presented here is received rather than earned. Verse 9 continues by saying, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This external righteousness, and this is how we're going to explain it, is surrounded by prepositions. It's faith in Christ. It's righteousness from God and it depends on faith. First, the basis of this righteousness is not any merit within the person, but it is fully centered in Christ. The basis of this righteousness, it's not something that's earned, but it is faith in Christ because it is something that Christ has earned. What we were unable to do by our own merit, Christ Jesus has appropriated. It is received through faith in Christ. Satisfaction for sin is not something that Paul earned, but rather it is something that Paul received. Jesus earned it. It is his righteousness. It is in Christ. Second, this righteousness is from God. Righteousness is referring here to that standing before God where we are declared just in his sight. God is the source. It is an act of God's free grace. We're based upon the work of Christ. All of our sins are pardoned, and we are counted as righteous in his sight. It is a righteousness from God, not because of what we have done, but because it is in Christ, and it is based on the work of Christ. It is imputed to us. It is freely offered, not by any work, but it is freely offered in Christ from God. Third, it is by faith. The righteousness from God in Christ is not a work by us, but all that is required is that we receive it by faith. So here, some might say, and you're thinking, well, if I have to have faith to receive it, is faith a work? But even here, faith is a gift that is worked by the Holy Spirit in the heart of people as the word is preached and read. 
It is all a work of God. The Holy Spirit, as the preaching and the reading of the word, the Holy Spirit regenerates our hearts and we come alive and we willingly and freely receive Christ as he is offered in the gospel. This righteousness is to us free by grace. The things which we are unable to earn through our work, we receive by the grace of God through faith. Jesus makes the propitiation for sins, which is a fancy word, meaning that he pays for their debt. But he also imputes righteousness to us, which means that we are made righteous and just before God. And that means that that for which we long for, strive for, people build entire businesses and cities and ideas on, is freely given and received by faith in Christ. But how do we know if faith is genuine? And luckily, we have the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Question 86 puts it like this. I know, it's a spicy Westminster joke. Um, <laughs> what is faith in Christ? Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace, whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation, as he is offered to us in the gospel. Faith in the confession is referred to first as a recognition that we are sinners and unable to save ourselves, but it looks and rests upon Christ alone for salvation. Faith is not what saves us, but it is the instrument which God uses for us to receive Christ and rest upon him alone. It is not just faith in general, but the object of that faith being Christ and him alone. Faith is resting and trusting in Jesus. That if we trust him, all our sins are forgiven and we are righteous before God. That if you put your trust in him today, that, that's what that means. That as Jesus looked upon the thief in the cross and said, today, you will be with me in paradise. Not based upon merit. Not based upon works. You might think I'm crazy. Or you might say to me, like, this is stuff I've heard before. <laughs> you might say to me, are you telling me that the deepest longings of my heart are actually because of a broken relationship with God and how that affects the world around me? that we are creatures of God and we all like sheep have gone astray and that all the efforts, both what I see in me and in our age and in others are really just a way for us to justify ourselves and to some extent to try to make ourselves righteous outside of God. But the solution to these deepest issues is as simple as trusting in Jesus as he is freely offered in the gospel. That for those that trust in him, their sins are covered by his sacrifice and that his righteousness is given to them. Could we, by simply trusting in Jesus, truly say our sins are covered and the promises of eternity are ours? That is what I'm saying. And you may say, why me? Why out of all the things and all the people and all the ages, why me? Could it really be for me? But as one Puritan wrote long ago, why not you? 
Why not you? Christ came into the world to die for sinners. If you today have not put your trust in Christ, the question remains, why not you? Christ is freely offered in the gospel. In him alone is the satisfaction for our sins. We are called to trust in him today. And for those that do trust in him, be encouraged. Let us, as we told the communicants, forget what was behind. Strive towards what's ahead. The upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's how Philippians continues, which Ethan will be preaching on in two weeks. We talked about it. I said it was okay. Um, verses 10 and 11. So, if the treasure of the gospel is Christ, and if the heart of the gospel is faith in Christ, what is the promise of the gospel? And we go to verses 10 through 11. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. The beauty of the gospel and its heart and promise is shown here fully in its provision. Paul, almost crying out when you read it, proclaims almost as if you could hear him shouting that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. At first glance, to talk about justification and external righteousness and immediately proceeded with talking about the re resurrection seems like a non sequitur. However, it makes wonderful sense. If it is true that we are reconciled to God in Christ by his righteousness, if his promises are true, what are the seals of that promise? What is the assurance that Christ is vindicated and he is freely offered in the gospel? And the gospels are clear that that is found in the resurrection. The resurrection is the vindication that Christ is who he said he was or is, you know. So if that becomes in a way an affirmation to us of the work of Christ, should we not also long and cry as Paul with great longing and expectation to know him and the power of his resurrection, that we have been made alive in our hearts and our hearts of stone have been replaced with a heart of flesh. The resurrection of Christ helps then frame the rest of our Christian life. Romans 8 and 11, 8, chapter 8, verse 11 puts it like this. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. There is life in the gospel. That's the promise. So if the resurrection of Christ points to the life of the gospel, what is that life filled with? And verse 10 reminds us, it reads like this, that I may know him and the power of the resurrection and may share in his sufferings. Suffering. I know. The sufferings and the batterings in this life are all part and parcel. Now, I'm not saying that Christianity is some sort of masochism where we pursue pain and avoid pleasure. 
But I'm also not saying that Christianity is some sort of hedonism where we avoid all pain and just pursue pleasure. Rather, Christianity is focused on Christ. A life which is centered on Christ has the amazing result of not being terrified by hardness. It does not diminish the hardness of life. Life has hardship. It does not dismiss it in a sort of naive way. The gospel gives clarity that suffering will come. But the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts has a way of making us brave. That's what Paul is saying. The gospel gives courage in the face of life. So the question is not whether we avoid suffering or pursue suffering. But we hear the call of Christ still to his disciples today. Follow me. That life has hardship. Life has sadness. Life has disappointment. The best lesson I ever received from my mom was when I was a kid, I wanted to go to a birthday party. And she, she got down on one knee and she told me, you can't go. And then she let me cry. Years later, I asked her, why didn't you let me go? I never asked as a kid. It didn't come to me. I didn't have the wherewithal. And she said, in life, it's good to hear no. Which is a really cold way of saying, I, I just didn't want to take you. Right? <laughs> I'm sorry. I love my mom. It was the best lesson I ever received. She's <laughs> a great mom. Life has disappointments. But the resurrection of Jesus gives us courage in the face of suffering and hardness. Because it reminds us, at verse 11 says, that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. There is a resurrection in life. The promise of the gospel is life. Jesus, when his friend Lazarus had died, talks with Martha. And in John 11, it reads like this. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? There is life in the gospel. To those that put their faith in Christ, even if our flesh may cease and our bodies return to dust, we shall never die. That there is life for us and resurrection fixed in Jesus. There is life in the gospel. The way and reason that we can face life is because Jesus arose and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And in Hebrews it says that he makes continual intercession for us. That is the basis of our courage. Think about it. Why are, not, are we not distraught at suffering and hardship as it presses against us? Because Jesus came, died, and rose again. And that to those that trust in him, there is life. 
that even in life, if it's filled with disappointment and discouragement and hardships and knows there is life in Christ. There is life in the gospel. Let us trust in him today. We are made alive with Christ and in union with him, as it says in Ephesians, seated with him in heavenly places. We are in Christ, so there is no sorrow in this life which can fully take away our joy. So to those, again, who have not placed their faith in him, come and buy food without money. And to those that trust Christ, be of good courage. Proverbs says it like this, the righteous are as bold as a lion. Let us have courage in the face of life, even when it's negative eight outside. There is no sadness in this life that lasts forever for those in Christ Jesus. That even these light and momentary afflictions do not compare. Jesus is the treasure of the gospel. Faith in him is the heart of the gospel and the promise of the gospel, even in the disappointments, even in sickness, even in hardships, even if all around our soul gives way, is that there is life. There is life in Christ. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. We come to you and we trust in you. You are the treasure. We pray, Lord, that here and in our lives we may proclaim, as Paul proclaimed, Jesus Christ, my Lord, that we may know you and the power of your resurrection, even as our bodies decay, even as hardship surrounds our life, even as we feel tossed around by the waves of hardship and distraught. We look to you and fix our eyes on you. Help us, Lord, as your children, as your people, as the ones who trust in you, to build our house upon the rock. Help us in the midst of life to enjoy things in their proper place, to bear with suffering, and to trust that in you are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We look to you, Jesus. And we pray for those that may not know you yet this morning, that they would put their faith in you. We look to you and we trust in your work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.